0: Hello and welcome once again to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast. And we have another episode for you. Uh, in uh, in this, uh, this episode is um, kind of a special one. It's kind of a spur of the moment thing. Uh, I'm calling it Mass of the Ages and Conspiracy Theories. And it's, uh concerns something, it concerns a film that just came out. Um, if you've... Uh, if you've not seen it, um, called Mass of the Ages Part II. If you don't know if you're a traditionalist, you probably know what this is. It's a filmmaker, his name's Cameron O'Hearn, who's made, wanted to make a series of films about the classical Roman Rite, the old liturgy, and uh, the Latin Mass in the vernacular, uh, as it's sometimes called. Uh, the first one came out last year, um, and uh, it was basically about how people have rediscovered the old Latin Mass and... Why they love it so much? All those of those sorts of things. The second um, film in this series he's making just came out, it's available for free on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, you should go see it. Uh, I support this project, by the way. Um, literally, the first the first film I actually donated money to. I think I I think I actually donated so much I got a, I think I have a. I think I got a credit as a producer or something like that. If you look at the end of the first film, I think maybe not. I did contribute a decent amount, a, a small amount of money, to that project, so I'm a supporter of this. However, uh, there's one thing in the second, in the second film, you should definitely watch as well, Master of Ages Part Two. The first film focused on why people are are being drawn to the old liturgy. The second part talks about why. Um, talks about the liturgical reforms of the 1960s and you should definitely see it. It distills about as well as you can I think in an hour or how how long the film was, hour and a half film, what took place in the 1960s for a popular audience. Um, It took me years of reading to, to catch up on what actually went on in the 1960s with regards to the liturgy, and if you've ever heard this stuff it's it would be it should be a new thing if you don't it's still a good refresher on what happened and I think it's an important film for that reason. however, however, I had one problem with the film, and this is what this episode this episode's about, and why I wanted to do it and it has to do with history because and particularly history and conspiracy theories. Because I I sometimes, again, this is one of the accusations against sometimes traditionalists, they tend to, you know, think and speak and talk in a conspiratorial manner. I I think I thought that um, for a long time before the whole revelations about Theodore McCarrick. That kind of broke my brain, made me begin to listen more to a lot of the, especially the people, traditionalists were criticizing the liturgy more seriously than what they had to say. And there are a lot of serious people who do a lot of serious work which is why the one problem in that film stuck out to me, I want to talk about it. And what I want to talk about is, if you don't know, there was a, it's called the Concilium, but there was a commission set up after Vatican II, or actually what was going on, to implement the reform of the liturgy. The Not the head of this, this commission, but its secretary, a guy named Annibale Bonini, was one of the guiding spirits behind the new liturgy, the making of it and also the suppression of the old liturgy so traditionalists have a long identity he had a lot of influence on that committee by the way that commission even though he wasn't the head of it because he ran everything uh everything went through his they mentioned this in the film um that everything every document went through his desk and so he had a lot of say in things so traditionalists have long, critics of the new liturgy have long identified him as one of the pro uh antagonists in this drama and i think for good reasons a lot of good reasons, actually. Leave that to one side. However, there has been for a long time a uh, belief in traditionalist circles um, that that uh, Annibale Bonini was also a Freemason. This isn't the place to get into the whole issue of Freemasonry in the in the Church. I guess I should probably do one of those eventually. But there has been this again, this thought that maybe his his wanting to uh, whatever reform the liturgy had something to do with his uh, his membership in Freemasonry, and particularly again, you can get the more radical versions of this are like he was you know an infiltrator who wanted to undermine the church from within. That's why he destroyed the liturgy. They don't go that far in the film, uh, but they bring this up. They bring up his possible. Membership uh, in a uh, in, in whatever Freemason some Freemason lodge in Italy, and I'm 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 going to criticize this, and let me be clear about this. This isn't because I don't like the film or, or generally agree with it. I have to stress this because sometimes people get upset when you criticize things. Um, it comes partly right from my academic background. It, you know, in in the academy, when somebody likes something that you've done, they criticize it a lot. Why? Because I want to get better. It's not that obvious to people who aren't in the academy. I'll give you an example. What I mean by this is that uh, I have a good friend of mine, uh, we were both um, studying in graduate school together, and I, I graduated before him, but he was doing his dissertation defense a few years later. I read it for him, went over and made some you know, suggestions, and I came to his, his uh, dissertation defense. And I was there, was a, his wife was a wonderful, sweet person. Um, they're, by the way, both Catholics, very good Catholics. and. But when she went into, she went in to see the first part of this dissertation defense. And of course, what they do is they try to tear it apart in these defenses. They want to like identify problems. So when you go to get it published, it will be well received. And they did this because they really they really loved his dissertation, by the way. Well, his wife didn't know any of this. And when we came out, I went to talk to her after I mean, he had to stay in and talk to this after it was over. And she was like, oh, my God, I, did this. I, was, like, I was trying to explain to her. No, no, it's fine. They loved it, actually. Um, I, I say this all as a preface, I'm going to say some some critical things here, so don't get alarmed. Uh, I say this because, and let me be clear about something, I used to not take any conspiracy theories seriously. Uh, partly because it's so hard to pull them off. Partly because if you do, it's almost impossible to give actual, get actual proof they occurred. Um, again, th- what changed my mind was the whole Theodore McCarrick saga. Having said all that, I'm still wary of them, and I, I think one of the things but the big point I want to make in this podcast is that this type of thinking, that there's some sort of intentional ill-will, malice on a part of a group of people, was not necessary uh, to produce what happened in the 1960s of the liturgy. And in fact, in general, I don't think that's the way history works, at least that's my opinion. And... Um, I, I want to stress this because, again, I, I, I don't say, by the way, that there was, you know, absolutely, there was nothing to do with Freemasonry uh, with regards to the church. There had been, since the, if you don't know the history of this, at least since the early 1800s when there were a lot of secret societies in Italy who wanted to unify the Italian peninsula and turn it into a nation state, a lot of these secret, you know, radical political organizations were supported by Freemasonic free lodges. This is why the church... There's a sort of neuralgic, still to this day, in a lot of circles about you know, Freemasonry. And there's a very different relationship between Freemasonry, Freemasonry, say, in Italy uh, and uh, with Catholicism. They're going to say, like, in the Anglophone world, especially if you're an American, if you're a Brit, it doesn't have the same sort of It's probably because you're living in a Protestant society. So there are differences there. I'm not going to say there's never been uh, there are issues with Freemasonry in the church. That would be totally wrong. In fact, I'm going to be doing a um, another episode later this summer, hopefully, on a modern episode in the 20th century. It definitely involved Freemasons, a, a scandal in the church. So I'm not saying there's nothing to this. But however, however, when you get to the actual, at least the issue of the liturgical reform, uh, I have seen no evidence that this is the case. Uh, Yves Sharon, who's a, a great French historian, wrote a biography, Fannibal Bonini, and he came to – he's, by the way, Sharon's kind of a traditionalist from what I understand. He came to the conclusion there's no evidence that Bonini was actually a Freemason. And Again, I'm mentioning all this for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that I want people to watch the film and take their argument seriously. And I think when you – again, they didn't go full Freemason conspiracy. Everybody knows you never go full Freemason conspiracy. But they brought it up. I really wish they hadn't because, quite frankly, the people you're trying to reach, as soon as you mention that, you they're going to tune you out. Like you're kooks. Can't take this. Even people might be sympathetic otherwise this is why I'm so intent on this. But this is the teaching element here. Uh, there's also something about the way history works, that it's rarely ever the result. Um, at least major changes to my way of thinking are the result of you know some intentional design on the plan of people like you know Annabelle Bonini and people like that. And I want to talk for a minute about liturgists in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the liturgical movement as it was called in the Catholic Church, to explain how, because again, if you're if you're a if you're a traditionalist and you find out about all this stuff that happened in the 60s, a lot of bad stuff. People destroying altars, Recovating churches, trying to ban the Latin Mass, all the stuff we know it went on, right? It might look very much like a conspiracy theory, like a bunch of crazy people launched a conspiracy theory, got control of the church, and then shoved these changes about everybody's throats. I grant you, it might look like that. I want to explain why it's not necessarily to believe that, and it's much more likely that, as I'm going to describe here, how it happened a different way. And, um, I want to talk a little bit about the liturgical movement first if you know anything about this and some of you listening to this probably do know a little about this so I apologize that this is an old hat but I don't need to go through this. The original liturgical movement as it started in the 19th century and the early 20th century had been uh, the goal of that movement had been to help the laity understand better the liturgy so they could experience it better. Uh, up through I'd say probably the, the you know World War I 1920s However by the 1930s things began to shift within these liturgical movement by the way refers to you know earlier writers like Dom Prosper Garanger who was a 19th century monk but especially at this later period it increasingly remains academic theologians who are now um, becoming experts in liturgy and under under their, their direction the liturgical movement begins to sort of, it begins to change. Um, it's the earlier notion that you're just helping the lady understand the liturgy as, as it's been perceived by the church, is replaced by a conviction that it's the liturgy this itself that is, is the problem. The liturgy has defects in it that prevent the laity from, you know, whatever, participating in the liturgy or understanding it. And so, as you get to the 50s and 60s especially, liturgists under uh, under the rubric of quote-unquote pastoral care begin to call for revisions to the liturgy. A lot of them, some careful, some reasonable, others much less careful and much less much less uh, inhibited. And I think I can't stress enough, this is important, most people don't do this when they talk about the movement. I think, especially by the 1940s, the fact that the study of liturgy had become an academic discipline is a big deal because the modern it's hard to explain this simply and clearly for you but modern academic disciplines all of them not just not just the sciences um, but things like modern historical uh, uh, scholarship see themselves or at least used to for a long time as being quote-unquote scientific that means they were applying the most rigorous you know, scientific uh, methods of like linguistic analysis and stuff like stuff that isn't technically like the biological sciences or the natural sciences, but as much like that as they could get, to remaining evidence of the past, whether it be you know uh, written evidence or you know whatever archaeological evidence. And this type of this type of discipline comes with a lot of assumptions buried into it. You know, the privileging, for example, of written sources, I think, to the detriment of oral tradition. Because and that's important because of course the Catholic Church believes oral tradition is just as important in determining the faith as written sources, uh, but also the idea that that this quote unquote scientific scholarship and they talk about talk like this by the way uh, do liturgists of the forties fifties and sixties about needing to have a liturgical a, a truly scientific study of of the uh, of the liturgy um, this is problematic right for a lot of reasons. Um, and so they adopt some ideas that are, are problematic and this begins to view how they affect the liturgy, both past and present. They begin to see in parts of the Roman Rite, as like I said before, quote unquote defects, such as for example the Roman Canon, the primary Eucharistic prayer in the Roman Rite up until the reforms of the 1960s. Um, to them, a lot of them began to see the Roman rite as having been sort of cobbled together arbitrarily over the centuries. And so they had this idea that things needed to be cut away in order to make the liturgy easier for the faithful to understand. And therefore, and this is another thing that's on their on their lips, actively could participate in the liturgy. Um, and again, this is where you get a lot of historians who were influenced by, you know, rationalistic uh, understandings of the liturgy by what's called historicism. This is historicism is basically historical relativism, the idea that every every epoch has a different belief system that's totally different, and you can't sort of reconcile them. And I think partly what happens is you begin they begin to see that the the change they begin to see the changes in the liturgy over time as they've come down to them, not as part of a, a purposeful development of the liturgy, you know, that's guided you know by providentially by the church. But as sort of random, um, as an accretion of you know what they would call useless elements, which has to be corrected by experts, by them, by they and their academic expertise. And um, and so I think they they begin to think in these terms, and they begin to follow, they begin to think that, and begin to take on what is almost a sort of Protestant sounding view of the liturgy. A lot of them following a very famous uh, um, scholar who was actually a great scholar in his own right. Joseph Jungmann uh, was a German scholar. wrote a very famous history of the liturgy. They tended to see, to see the liturgy after the earliest centuries as having become corrupt or defective up to their time. other words, they wanted to—they thought uh, in recent centuries that liturgy had become corrupt. They wanted to go back and look at earlier, earlier phases of the liturgy to reform it for the needs of the contemporary of contemporary society. And. Um, And it's here they have. This is where they they go off the rails. And one of the things that they have this idea is that they get this idea that you know liturgy is something that you can sort of self consciously create. And this is this is my big bugaboo with them is that it's almost um, the liturgy was almost something like society itself. It's something you can sort of get up in the morning and say I'm gonna I'm gonna create my own society. It make no sense if you said that right I'm gonna create a new United States of America tomorrow you can get up in the morning and and create self-consciously a new Constitution if you want you can create a new government and um, there's a reason for this and the reason for this is that something like society uh, is a, a human society is the outcome of innumerable human interactions no one person no one group of persons no matter how powerful they are can just get up in the morning and create their own society that's going to last and perdure indefinitely by doing this um, and you can see this this is an idea it's fairly old at this point but you go back to people like for example Adam Smith his idea of the free market being you know guided by the invisible hand the idea is that uh, or another notion would be the idea of Joseph de Mestre the uh, Catholic thinker of the 19th century that all societies were guided providentially by the interactions of all you know um, by the providential guidance of human interactions over time. Edmund Burke would be kind of a um, the philosopher Ed, British British philosopher Edmund Burke would be another example of this. The idea is that even though something isn't controlled and directed it still can be purposeful and ordered. Uh, that it's not just a big mess essentially. In fact, when you think about it, yeah, that that's obvious when you think about it the way. Another example is, by the way, um, I owe this to the philosopher Edward Fesser, who was writing about this a few weeks ago. Uh, Friedrich Hayek, the libertarian economist, talked about uh, spontaneous orders. Again, this is the idea that something is not planned or directed, but by virtue of, uh, again, people in their interactions, uh, it's not meaningless or purposeless. It has, a, it has a sort of form to it or a design to it that's not conscious or, or not... Um, intentional and uh, this is this is sort of parallel to the way some people like to talk about um, the development of doctrine because you'll you'll sometimes hear people say well the church needs to to develop the doctrine it's doctrine on sexuality again usually because they want not alter the church's teaching or even in its documents if you go back and read Dignitatis Humanae this is the document of, of Vatican II which um, you know <laughs> embraces religious liberty One of the first sentences in that document says the church in this declaration uh, intends to develop the doctrine on religious liberty. And I have to say I have a real serious problem with that because the church doesn't doesn't get up in the morning and say we want doctrine to do this, wave its magic wand, and it changes effectively. (laughs) Um, What happens is the church recognizes when development has taken place. This was basically, that was, as far as I understand it, was basically uh, John Henry Newman's idea. Not that the church had this bureaucratic, divine bureaucratic authority to go changing doctrine willy-nilly. And I think a similar idea got into the heads, I know it got into the heads of liturgists before Vatican II. And so in other words, what happens is you have all these liturgists before the council, they're meeting in liturgical conferences all over the place. They'll come from similar backgrounds. They'll have similar academic training at that point. What you have people basically all they basically are all unanimous in their agreement on these things. Like, and I can I can attest to this from the secular academy. Um, a lot of this, a lot of academic uh, scholarship is is can be an echo chamber. And people just heard the same stuff all the time. And there was no serious pushback against it within among these academic liturgists and so nobody intentionally set about to say (laughs) there's no there's no mustache twirling villains who got up in the who got together in the 1950s and said let's ruin the church's liturgy they just all adopted a lot of really really dubious ideas about the liturgy and this is the other thing they pushed the church to try to make changes I, i should mention this as well though because you'll read works by the, I'll, I'll cite some in a second, you read works by these liturgists. <clears throat> um, and they'll say things like, there's a book, uh, a guy named H.A. Uh, Reinhold, wrote a book called Bring the Masses to the People in 1960. And uh, in his book, he's he's relaying what he takes to be the consensus of liturgists, right? About all the things they should change about the liturgy, which is a lot by that point. But he'll always, he'll go through all, uh, he'll go through each part of the liturgy, right? He'll talk about... Uh, this needs to be changed, Th- this was the agreement among scholars at this conference, that this should be changed. But then he'll go, he'll end almost all these discussions by saying almost none of these things will change. The reason why is these liturgists knew how conservative Rome was about making changes to the liturgy up to that point. They're calling for a lot of these changes prior to the Council because they don't think Rome's going to accept hardly any of it, and they say this openly, like, we, we're pushing for all this so we can get a couple of things here and there. Um, and um, and they also, by the way, are aware that nobody, the people at large, the laity are not calling for these changes at all either. They know that. This is largely an elite, uh, an elite phenomenon. And what happens is, in the council, is that, you know, and this sort of begins in John the 23rd, but I don't think it would have gone nearly as far if he'd lived longer. But they find in Paul the Sixth someone who is basically on their side. And I think, I don't know this for a fact, I think to their shock, he basically gave them everything they wanted and more. And once that door was open, they just kept pushing. And uh, and by the time Rome and Paul VI realized this was going really badly, it was too late to sort of close the door on it. That's all that really requires for the things to have taken place in the 1960s. And let me, you know, let me, uh, me, you know, let me give you some examples, by the way. I'm going to read some stuff to you here, just little excerpts of actual... Liturgists from the 1960s, and again, when I talk about their, their, you know, this, the effect of academic scholarship on their thinking, I think it could sort have of ga- colored their thinking in some ways. They have a real overconfidence in their ability to make the necessary changes based on their, their historical learning. Let me read something to you. This is from um, Charles Davis, it's a book in 1960 uh, called Liturgy and Doctrine, and he's talking about the history of the liturgical movement up to that time. And a few quotations here, and I'll comment on them. This is from page 1819 of that book. He's talking about how, how wonderful uh, historical studies of the liturgy are and how they've made them aware of defects in the liturgy. I mean, let me read this stuff. I'm quoting now. Quote, historical studies laid bare the evolution of the liturgy and showed the reasons why the liturgy had ceased to play the part in the ordinary Christian life that it should. One conclusion became clear. If vitality was to be restored to the liturgical life of the church, changes must be made, Uh, Going on, Uh, historical studies made it possible to discern which changes would be foreign to liturgy and due to some unfounded modern fashion or fashion. There was no question of a mere desire to restore ancient liturgical practice. The aim was to uncover the liturgical tradition of the church and gain an insight into its nature. Uh, unquote. And what he's talking about there is he says, when he says, uncover the liturgical tradition of the church, is that he thinks it's been covered up by, by, by defects, by corruptions. Uh, in recent centuries, it's become grown over with accretions that were meaningless or something. And if we just get rid of these meaningless accretions, people will understand it and appreciate the liturgy better um he makes an interesting comparison um this is from this is another passage i want to read here he says quote a striking example of this is the modern renewal and our understanding of the church owing to the need to combat various errors attention was concentrated for centuries on the church as a visible and hierarchical society this one-sidedness has been overcome by going back to earlier tradition and digging uh, out the rich data found there on other aspects of the church it is the same with the liturgical uh, renewal a return to tradition to overcome the defects of the present." Unquote. Now, he doesn't say this and he doesn't actually I don't think he unconsciously believes this. But what he's talking about there is that the liturgy as the what he's saying is the pre-conciliar liturgy is basically defective in some uh, some important regards. Now, again, you can you can say that you know that's not necessarily I'm not saying that's, uh, you know, that's not necessarily a heretical or whatever uh, out-of-bounds statement to make, but it's a real dangerous one because it gets the idea that, well, the liturgy is just, it's so overgrown that it's just, it's not something worthy of reverence. And I think these people embrace these ideas because they badly wanted to. Um, all these thinkers that are talking about here, uh, I won't go into too many of them, I don't want to go into too many details here, they had these ideas that, um, they had this idea of a pristine liturgy in their minds, right? Um, the idea of a perfect liturgy, and I think they made the perfect the enemy of the good. Because yeah, there were problems with the way the liturgy was celebrated before the council. Uh, you could find parishes before the council where people weren't paying attention, didn't know what was going on, didn't care. But what they didn't seem to consider is that there's nothing particular about this to, to the modern, to the to the era they're living in. In every age you can find parishes of people who aren't paying attention at the liturgy, don't understand it, don't care. <laughs> it has nothing to do with, you know, the recent, he's criticized. He's, by the way, when he says, you know, um, you know, the recent liturgical tradition has problems with it, he's talking about post-Trent. And again, there's nothing particular about that. It's a mistake. They made some intellectual mistakes in trying to seek out, uh, you know, ways to make the liturgy more important to people. And to this day you have people who refuse to sort of, (laughs) refuse to sort of understand this. Um, And and again it's hard, I won't go into this too much detail, but you have this very rationalistic approach to the to the liturgy itself. I mentioned um, the idea that parts of the liturgy seemed arbitrary to them. One of the big points of contention about this whole reform was the Roman canon and you probably if you read it enough about this you know this but I'm going to go through this so people can understand this. Um, the Roman canon of course had been the Eucharistic prayer for the Roman Rite for 1500 years basically. Um, by the 1950s you had liturgists uh, throughout Europe and the United States you began to see it as being defective. Why? For several reasons. One, um, One critique was that the parts of the Roman canon the various sections of the prayers didn't flow logically enough they didn't look as they weren't as uh I guess in their sense didn't make sense you know like you're reading uh, they didn't make a logical sequence I guess or something like that but this is a, a critique you hear a lot it's illogical doesn't make sense which uh again this is a very rationalistic approach to liturgy you know a, a litur- litur- liturgical um Liturgical actions, words, don't necessarily flow in a logical, sequential order, like you know, like a, like a syllogism. Uh, I wonder if there isn't, by the way, some some uh, detrimental influence here from scholasticism, because they they tend to overconceptualize things. Um, liturgy, you know, tends to speak in symbolic terms, but at least used to, uh, even in Latin. And I think they just they got this these ideas in their head that kind of colored uh, some with some dubious assumptions, stuff like this. But they also just made out-and-out out errors of scholarship, one of which is they thought the Roman canon was defective because it didn't look like Eastern liturgies, Byzantine liturgies. Um, their Eucharistic prayers all contain what's called an anaphora, and an anaphora is a prayer that calls down the Holy Spirit and asks the Holy Spirit to transform the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ. If you listen to the Roman canon, all it basically says is ask uh, asked God the Father to accept these gifts as if they are the body and blood of Christ. And a lot of people back then thought that these Eastern liturgies were much older than the Roman one. They thought they went back to an earlier period because they all had they all had this, the, the, the anaphora is not the right term, the epiclesis is the prayer that has to call down the Holy Spirit. Because they all had an epiclesis it must mean that the Roman uh, canon is somehow defective theologically speaking. What seems to have never occurred to these people, which people tend to. And by the way, nobody believes that now um, uh, that the Roman Roman uh, rite is is uh, a much later liturgy than these Eastern ones. In fact, um, Roman canon goes back, uh, is far I understand, the second oldest Eucharistic prayer in existence. There's one Syriac prayer is a little older, although it was although it was altered a lot through the ages. The Roman canon basically stayed the same since about the fifth or sixth century. It's very ancient, and the point is that. Um, we think it goes back to the reign of Pope Damasus, which is the end of the 4th century, the Roman canon and its origins. And um, Robert Taft, who was a Byzantine, he's also a Jesuit, Byzantine liturgist, liturgical, liturgical scholar, no fan of traditionalists, by the way, I might add, def- definitely a big defender of the reforms of the 1960s, pointed out that the Roman canon was almost certainly older uh, than people thought because one of the reasons why it didn't have uh, this prayer asking the Holy Spirit to turn the gift turn the bread and uh, body uh, the bread and wine into the body of Christ was, is because it came from an earlier era in which that the debate over the Holy Spirit hadn't taken place yet. If you recall like the, the Council of Nicaea 325, the first Creed it issued didn't even mention the Holy Spirit. It only got added in 381 at the First Council of Constantinople. The debates on, you know, whether the Holy Spirit was, you know, co-equal with God the Father didn't even begin in the 360s, 370s. Uh, it's almost to me a certainty that at least uh, in its earliest earliest forms, the Roman Canon goes back before that because it doesn't even mention the Holy Spirit. And that's that's, as far as I can tell, more or less the, the rough consensus of people today. And so you have this overconfidence among people in their expertise, is my point, making sometimes a lot of claims that didn't hold up. Again, they weren't all horrible scholars. I don't mean to suggest that, but they made a lot of dubious assumptions. And there was this sort of you know, um, stampede to try to make changes in the 60s once they got a chance to do that. And I can't stress this enough. It really was Vatican II that opened all this stuff up. If there had been no Vatican II, these changes wouldn't have been made. Because once they could speak in the name of the Council, and once they got a Pope who was allowed them to do so, that sort of, it sort of radicalized some of these people. I should stress this as well, a lot of these, uh, some of these um, liturgical reformers came to regret the whole thing. Um, One of whom was a man named uh, Antonelli, Cardinal Antonelli, Ferdinando Antonelli, who was on a lot of pre-conciliar reform commissions. Uh, who was definitely a reformer, but he came to really regret what happened by the end of it. I'll I'll quote some, it's a famous quote, you've probably seen it floating around the internet, but I'll quote this. Um, He was done with this by the late 1960s and by the end of this, he'd been a big supporter of this to begin with. By the time you get to the late, early 1970s, he'd become really disillusioned with this. Let me read you, he was a a figure in the the concilium, the commission that put together the new liturgy. This is what his uh, evaluation of this whole thing uh, is. This is from 1971. Uh, He says, quote, that which is sad, however, is a fundamental datum, a mutual attitude, a pre-established position. Namely, many of those who have influenced the reform and others have no love and no veneration of that which has been handed down to us. They begin by despising everything that is actually there. This negative mentality is unjust and pernicious, and unfortunately Paul VI tends a little to this side. They have all the best intentions, but with this mentality, they have only been able to demolish and not. To restore, uh, and uh, unquote. And again, this is kind of what I, some people recognize—they they made serious mistakes. Um. You, you know why some people can't admit they made a mistake? I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Is my point? My bigger point here is that and this us go back to my original point, is that it's kind of weird as a parallel with the mistakes I think some of the lit- liturgists made in the fifties and sixties with Trads today. They can't imagine there wasn't some sort of intentional design to destroy the old liturgy. Uh, they can't imagine how it could be not the result of human design. And again, it doesn't mean by the way, human free will is obviated by this by this fact that, you know, a lot of great historical events are the outcome of innumerable different human interactions. People still have free will, and some people's people's contributions are more important than others. It's pretty clear Annabelle Bonini uh, and Paul VI are probably the two most important people for how things played out. Their contributions mattered more than other people's, but it wouldn't have been possible if there hadn't been this sort of hive mind of people who all share the same concerns, more or less without necessarily, you know, any sort of grand conspiracy going on. Um, and again, I mentioned this before. I think the the, the council itself radicalized a lot. some people who were for, you know, only uh, uh, you know conservative changes, a few changes here and there. Probably thought, oh my God, we can actually reshape everything now. It probably went to their heads. Usually does when you get into this sort of you know um, chaotic events like that. And as I mentioned before, by the time Rome did, by the way, try to stop things eventually way too late way too late I think by I think the first document they issued correcting abuses was like 1967 already too late Uh, the door had already been opened and they simply it was so widespread they couldn't stop it and so again I I don't want to to again to to come back to this I don't want to I'm not trying to denigrate the the film or to you know criticize too much traditionalist but you have to understand it just doesn't work. I know I know, the need to personalize things is, is important. You put a face on things so you can understand things more simply. Annabelle Bonini deserves a lot of criticism, by the way. He was a, for all accounts, a deeply dishonest person. But even he, and again, Eve Sharon's biography makes this clear, he did this with I, what I could say is like the best of intentions. He did really want the liturgy to flourish. He did want people to understand it but they just got these ideas in their head that just were just wrong and you know I I think probably if you're looking for a conspiracy theory that might be true it might be um you know why why the liturgy was then the new liturgy was then imposed on the entire church and the old one Uh, at least they attempted to get rid of it um because I think once you have and this goes with the council itself right what I'm saying about the liturgy is a proxy for the whole debate on Vatican II. It doesn't require some sort of intentional conspiracy. It just doesn't. Now, once it gets going, however, things change a little bit because I think what happened following the council is clearly people who didn't have good intentions, who just wanted to, you know, undermine church teaching and stuff like this have been using the whole event of that of that. Of the council and its aftermath, as an excuse to push for things that are incompatible with the Catholic faith, that's that's not even a conspiracy. We know that's true. We have evidence of that now. Uh, in the reign of uh, Pope Francis. Um, but even even the even the the way it came out of with the imposing the liturgy on the whole new liturgy on the whole church, and destroying the old one doesn't necessarily require a conspiracy. Why? Because you have to understand something. Um, you know, the defenders of the new liturgy, you know, if, you, if they admit that, like, from the beginning, there were problems with the reform, that means that everything else now has been undermined that they've done. And once you admit that at, the, at its root there were problems, that means everything else comes in for criticism. That means they're basically blamed for all these bad things that happened. Um, you know how, um, probably maybe you don't know, um, World War I, uh, when the Germans invaded Belgium, um, trying to get to France and knock out France. That was their plan, and Ger- Germany was in World War I, to knock out the, the French by taking, attacking it through Belgium and taking Paris quickly. Well, the French defeated them at the Battle of the Marne in 1914, and at that point their strategy was done. There was no way they could win the war, and yet they kept on fighting anyway. Why? Because the Germans knew they had started it, and they'd be held accountable if they, if they lost the war. So they kept fighting to the bitter end, uh, hoping the, uh, to exhaust the other side and avoid taking responsibility for their actions, and I think for a lot of people, if you're wondering why people still to this day—again, we're not even talking here, by the way—it's not a matter of it is not a matter of infallibility or even the indefectibility of the church. These reforms were not on that level, but I think some people just don't want to admit they were responsible for doing something that was really bad. Um, again, I had my say in my my series on traditionalism. I think the effects of the Turkish the reform in the 60s and 70s were, were terrible. <laughs> you can say things have gotten better since then, but it doesn't make up for what happened then. Uh, it was a net loss, to put it in those terms. Uh, and so, yeah, my only point here is that, again, a lot of things that look like a conspiracy in history that sometimes are just the outcomes. Uh, of, you know, vast numbers of human interactions, which is another way of saying, by the way, that e- the things like this, as awful as they are, are the mysterious outcome of God's providence what allows this to happen. So uh, we don't, again, this doesn't, I, I, I should say, um, hey, if I see evidence that Anibal Bonini was a Freemason, and there was some sort of, you know, document where like he's, you know, corresponding with the whatever Masonic Lodge in Rome about this, I'll change my mind. That's how history works, you see evidence change mine. Um, when there's no evidence for something, you shouldn't go around, and this is why I'm criticizing that film, you shouldn't bring it up. It just doesn't do the cause any good, in my opinion. So anyway, I just want to talk about that briefly, get that out there, use it as sort of like a teaching moment to explain to you why you shouldn't always jump to those conclusions, even though we live in a time when, <laughs> yeah, you have reasons to jump to conclusions about a lot of things. Um, and yet still is more or less the same outcome so anyway I hope that wasn't too inside baseball or boring or anything but I did want to talk about that and and just as a general um, point about the way history often works that doesn't necessarily require those things so I hope you guys if you hope you if you like this um, you know please as always uh, go to the you know subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you choose Uh, subscribe on YouTube it's up there. Like our Facebook page. Go visit our website. Uh, have some new stuff coming. Um, hopefully, another article. Um, I'm going to send another article to Crisis anyway. We'll see how that goes soon enough. Uh, also, new episodes will be coming. At least one next week, I think. A new one. So, look out for that. It should be a fun one, by the way. It's a little more fun than this controversial but not necessarily as heavy or deep so look out for that and once again thank you all you guys for listening who listened to the podcast i very much appreciate it uh hope you guys uh have a great weekend uh god bless you all and you'll be hearing from me soon take care